Hello and welcome to the Granta Fortnightly podcast. My name is Ted Hodgkinson and I'm the online editor at Granta and this week I'm joined by Lavinia Greenlaw, the author of four collections of poetry, including Minsk, which was shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot, Forward and Whitbread Poetry Prizes, and most recently, The Casual Perfect, as well as two novels and two works of non-fiction, including The Importance of Music to Girls. Her work has, across this variety of forms, been an exploration, in her own words, into the point at which we start to make sense of things, an attempt to arrest and investigate that moment, to separate its components and test their effects. A new direction for this exploration emerged two years ago when she began a project called Audio Obscura, a sound work based in Manchester Piccadilly and London St Pancras stations, which attempts to recreate the inner lives and thoughts on the borders of language of the travellers passing by. Lavinia has kindly agreed to read some of her poems from her latest collection, The Casual Perfect, beginning with Lo-Fi, which I think has particular resonance with Audio Obscura, and ending our discussion with Saturday Night, which you can read on grant.com. It's a pleasure to have you with us, Lavinia. Thank you. Lo-Fi. We have no choice. It is in our particulars and variables to write noise. One among us, a knight, drank his weaponry and woke to speak swords. He called for feathers. Hurt by his cries, they choked him with feathers. A stranger might think us blessed. It's such a wonderful poem, and one of the reasons I asked you to read it to start our discussion because I think it gets to the heart of this collection and also your project with Audio Obscura. In the case of that project, what struck me was your decision to locate the search for that point at which human noise becomes language in train stations. Of course, we all have subconscious thoughts, thoughts that run below the world, words we present to the world. And I thought perhaps a train station is a physical space that has a very repressed subconscious. Um, we like to brush off these transitions, arrivals, departures. But these things can be full of trauma. Do you think train stations are spaces we have tried to forget? And is this perhaps what drew you to them? I think they're spaces where we sometimes try to forget ourselves or want to forget something. And uh, I, I was fascinated from, from the start with this project when I began hanging around in stations and, and watching people by the strange atmosphere, which is a mixture of contemplation and tension. I mean, most people have quite blank faces, even if they're with someone else, and seem to be very much in a world of their own. But no one seems particularly relaxed, because, of course, they're not. They're waiting for someone to arrive or they're waiting to go somewhere. And, and I think that what I was interested in exploring, which is not so much the conscious or the subconscious, but the things we don't know we want to say, um, felt like one of those transitional states which which we could argue is manifested by, by the station. Hmm. As in a, a place you don't know you are because you pass through it before you realise you've been there, possibly. Yeah. I think particularly with that poem, what's, what struck me was the way that you pick up how we we can't help but make noise. I mean, we're sitting here right now with two microphones, so I'm very conscious of making noise. But in a train station, you're you're trying to move through it probably as facelessly and noiselessly as you can. And I think what's really interesting about the project is that it, it, 
it sort of unmasks that and tries to highlight the way that we make these very telling noises um, without possibly realising it. Yes, I mean, there's the obvious noise we make, as in the things we say, and they might be to someone next to us or more often these days into our phones. Mm. Um, And I think it's extraordinary how easily we forget the contradiction between the fact that we can hear people going past us all the time saying all kinds of things and yet we ourselves believe we are not heard and so I wanted to explore the these imagined boundaries really and to sensitize people to also how the mind and the senses operate beyond our control so that you collect if you like the noise of other people, like static. I mean, we don't choose what we overhear, we just overhear it. And whether we remember it seems to have nothing to do whether, with with whether it was something dramatic or profound. It could be utterly trivial, but sometimes that strange remark somebody made as they went past you stays with you forever. Listen. The heart of it. Socks, water rate, nail scissors, birthday card. DNA. Under the fingernails, traces of lead. Someone must have seen. Bulbs, the garden. Oh, God, the garden. What am I going to get round to the garden? of cuts, precise, considered, round her waist. What does that mean, round her waist? Like a belt, any more delicate. A chain, almost a daisy chain. Such a tiny waist. Affidavit, lunch, my name, will. Not mad. Things I can see clearly. There is always something left behind. Something slips or is lost or forgotten and it's all right. I want you to know that someone has seen As I was listening to the recording, I, I couldn't help but try to construct narratives out of the fragments that I was hearing. And um, I wonder if um, that's something that one can really avoid doing. And perhaps some of the the words and the, the phrases that we hear in a station we don't have a choice about hearing, is it telling on us which ones we try to reconstruct? Which Is it telling on us that we have to try and fit that fragment into a larger mosaic? I think the ones that we respond to most strongly, the ones that we try to complete, often have something in them that we recognise that, and they set off, if you like, a kind of natural resonant frequency in us. Mm. So like a car rattling or a bridge shaking, we start to to, to shake, we start to, mm-hmm. to reverberate with something that was said because it's connected directly with something in us. I mean, I think that's exactly what happens when we connect with a poem or a piece of music as well. 
and uh and what i've tried to do in in this project is to give people a very heightened experience of the overheard which dissolves a further boundary that between what is spoken and what is thought and to um to really activate that sense of wanting to complete the fragment or wanting to make sense of something and and to give people also things that they don't want to make sense of that they wish they hadn't heard so it's coming at you the other way as well mm. i wonder um if during the process of making audio obscura you um a lot of your work has an extraordinary, almost uncanny acoustical sensibility, um, recreated speech in your poems, and it, it, there's a wonderful oral sensitivity. Um, and I wonder, in, in the process of editing Audio Obscura, did you, did you long for a pencil, or did you, were you, did you actually enjoy the process of editing from sound recordings? Well, I, I made sound visual. I, I drew out maps. Um, mm. I... the. The process started with a lot of observation um, in stations, out of which I came up with what I thought of as 12 essential states of tension. So somebody who was being released from something, somebody who was being held back by something, somebody who'd been, who was moving towards something they did not want to meet. Um, and I thought of these metaphorically rather than literally and created characters and then narratives and wrote 12 interior monologues and then actors were cast and I recorded them but very much directed them to speak as if they were thinking rather than acting um, and then I, I smashed up those monologues to really try and get at the fragments which which were the which which became the overheard which were the things that that gather static in the listener's ear and and uh, make you want to know more and and started orchestrating them so working very closely with the sound designer i i would i would actually lay out on big sheets of paper bits of these monologues and create rhythms and and patterns um and then he worked with me to embed them in a station background and it was an incredibly physical and visual process very much like building a house and i thought about this recently because i was i was talking to an architect about um the project and and thinking about how for me poetry too is very very visual and very much about dynamics um space tension disturbance constraint and and that for me is music, it's poetry, and it, it's sound. I mean, it's just disturbance in the air, which you're arranging, um, something like that. Hmm. It's, it's so fascinating that you, you, un, you approach it with 12 states in mind or 12 situations in mind. Did that, I mean, through the process of writing um, your, your novels and your poems, I mean, you always mining the inner life of your, of your characters, and I wonder... Was there a point when you were observing people in preparing for this project that you you saw those twelve states emerging, or was it something that you did in order to um, in order to throw those the things that you were hearing in the in the concourses of these stations into some kind of order? Yeah. I've hardly used anything I actually heard. I think that what I was interested in 
was learning the kind of words that stuck as they went by me. But I was more interested in, in finding the inner life of the station and and trying to draw out of my observations those those basic conditions that people found themselves in when they're on the station. And what I want the listener to connect with is is that is that is you know some essential state they've been in themselves which may seem to be a purely i don't know practical state we might call it so somebody who's been delayed but but the thing i've written might make them think about other ways in which they've been delayed mm. did you feel at all that there was a specifically british aspect to this project in that we are typically a fairly um private people and a train station is one of these places where perhaps the private world, the secret world, boils over. I mean, we have so many examples in, in literature and um, theatre. I'm thinking of um, uh, Brief Encounter, for instance, or, you know, this in the British <laughs> book, but even Anna Karenina has a yes. train station at its heart. And yeah. I wonder, what is it about trains? If it's not British, <laughs> what is it about them that leads us to that sort of... Secret well, I world. think we're very formed by our geography. I mean, we're a small island that's very crowded, and we're also a small island which still is under the illusion that it's a, the centre of the world and not just a tiny place on the edge of a continent. And I, th I think, I mean, when I lived in America, I was very struck by, by again, a very di a different formation which came from having a lot of space but not a huge amount of evident history or extant history. Um, and so the sort of time and space dimensions of life were different. The physics of life were different. And I think our physics, our British the sort of physics of, of being in being here um, very much affect how we relate to the people around us. Um, and I'm sure what I've written is is very essentially Britain, British. Um, but I'd be very interested in doing it somewhere else and finding out how other people interact and and exploring that. Yes, I mean, when I was listening to Audio Obscura, I was very conscious of trying to not categorise or stereotype the voices I was hearing, but at the same time aware of, you know, those that internal um, appraising other people for what, um, you, what you want or you, what you think you want you know um, when am I going to look after the garden what a tiny waste this person has those kinds of things which um, just seem to me um, for better or worse sort of deeply British kind of concerns in a way I think that um, because I've taken away narrative and I've pretty much taken away character I mean we don't hear anybody's name um, then I think you do get within these, because these are sort of very simplified conditions or reduced conditions that I'm conveying, you, you do get um, commonalities really are because our minds do that. Our minds flick from something incredibly original mm. to something that everyone else thinks at, when they are in that mood at that point, whatever. I'm wondering if we can turn now to your collection and if you wouldn't mind reading the titular poem, um, The Casual Perfect. The Casual Perfect. A borrowed tense, achievement of the provisional, paraphasia, 
a gesture made in musical time. The unarticled world, elapsed geography, description in action, her rooms somehow always at sea, a childhood home, the sprawling brightness of the return, the intimacy of the telescope, the becoming of quartz or iron. It's such a beautiful poem. Um, Reading the whole collection, and particularly this poem, um, I was struck by the advancement of an idea. um, The hidden continuous, I think, is a phrase that um, stuck in my mind from superlocution. And the phrase in the poem you just read, the achievement of the provisional. These these ideas... um, I, I think this idea of um, how we do define anything, how we how we place ourselves, locate ourselves, um, from the start of the collection to the very end in the circle around our house, when there's this extraordinary image of an anchor resting in the mud, um, may as well be anchoring the earth, you write. Um, there seems to be a deep inquiry here into the possibility of precision in a world that is constantly getting away from us, are some of these poems about trying to temporarily wrestle back some momentary precision? That's so beautifully put. <laughs> I think I think I have been trying to do that, and I think maybe now I'm saying it's all right, I'm not going to try so desperately to be precise. Um, no, I, I think you need to be careful about that. I do want to be precise. I think poetry should always be precise. But it can be precise about incomplete knowledge, and and it can be precise about uncertainty. Um, I think these poems come come at a point where I've um, I'm more interested, as I say somewhere else in 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 the book about in travelling a question than than answering it. And there's as and I'm sort of coming to terms with a kind of contentment (laughs) which is a word I didn't think I'd use Um, which is probably to do with getting older and probably to do with with seeing some sense of of where value lies where the value of experience and and engagement and connection lie and and I'm sort of stopping trying to resolve the question that started me writing in the first place, which was, which was, how can anything be fixed? I sort of stopped worrying about that. I think <laughs> it's um, yeah. It, I think one of the things that struck me with these questions that are left unanswered in some ways and were posed at the end of the poems, which perhaps now you're at a at a point in your in your work in your life where you you allow them to exist as questions. Um, I I sort of started to see them as maybe the linguistic equivalent of that anchor in the mud. Um, The, at the end of uh, the poem, end of marriage, that heartbreaking line, where does everyone go? Um, Or in one of my favorite poems, blues, that's another Sunday over. um, The first two lines, two minutes to five, turn it up, fire, food and comfort never enough yeah these questions that you're allowing to exist as questions now 
Yes, or or I it, or it's all right not to know. I don't think it's something as as slick as the question is now the answer. But I think it's really that it's all right not to know, that that it's that things come out of the dark, and I can't necessarily go into the dark and find out where they've come from. And it's all right not to entirely know myself or the world or someone else or why <laughs> or what or where <laughs> something like that yeah it, uh, it's a strange kind of comfort I suppose that poetry can articulate this space and for that to be a kind of precision in itself a new pre- kind of precision for it to um, approach that void and name it but not that's thank you that's that's really helpful (laughs) describing um that back to me because I wouldn't have known how to describe that but you're right there is I am trying to be precise about a space that I am happy to leave empty or unexplained yeah I there's it's a collection full of movement um, in a way that your previous collection, Minsk, was often about stasis and um, a kind of sense of belonging or location. Um, yeah, and I, I think that that certainly um, feeds into some of the the reactions that I had to the poems and one of the series of poems within the collection about rivers, for instance, which are of course um natural bodies of movement that um and i wonder um on a a slightly geeky note whether you actually went to the separate rivers <laughs> the may show for lestry blakeney um, point and seven they're not all rivers the, the the series you're talking about is called winter finding and winter finding is an old name for the autumn equinox and what it was that over a year i made a series of four radio documentaries about the solstices and equinoxes and i went to the four corners of britain to do that and Maze Howe is a Neolithic burial chamber on Orkney. And then I went from there, I went there for the winter solstice and nearly never nearly didn't get out because it started to snow as soon as the sun set on, on the winter solstice. And then I went down to um Cornwall to the Fowl Estuary where they have extraordinary tides for the spring equinox, and then to Blakeney Point in Norfolk, which is a shingle spit for the summer solstice and then most excitingly to this river the seven for the seven boar in for the autumn autumnal equinox and that was one of the most exciting experiences of my life um because i'm a very urban and analytical person i don't think of myself responding directly physically to nature but when i've seen nature do things that don't make sense to me. It's my body, not my mind, that respond. And the seven boar is... Um, it, it varies in height, but the night we went, it was, I think, 15 feet high wave, travels five miles inland on top of the river. And as it comes towards you, it feels as if the earth has been unpinned and is rolling up towards you. And everything around you becomes incredibly quiet. There's a complete collapse of atmosphere. 
And then the wave goes by and everything in my body was saying that wave should break, waves break, that wave should break. And it didn't break, it just kept moving. And it created this extraordinary sense of tension. And so in my kind of exploration of things being arrested or trying to break things down or trying to fix things, I think those times when I've physically gone out in the night and experienced it um, have been better than, than any poem. <laughs> I'm wondering, would you mind reading that poem? It's I uh, just um, it's such a extraordinary phenomenon. I had no idea that it seven. When the weather comes always and sideways, it's not enough the settling. Why is this known only and over as first and not all over again? Each time the tide overtakes itself, what's worked loose is moved in land on river, over running river, carrying off the tree chimney telegraph wreckage of your way home. It starts with a lapse, a taking back of background, breeze and creep and song, a making room for the massive collapse of distance, a rolling up of the world into a wave that comes to an end unbroken. There's no way home. Ask the man who turns in his sleep, reaching past his wife for his lover, his lover for his wife, and cries that the lamp must be put out, and puts it out, setting fire to his hair. The massive collapse of distance, I think, is something we've been touching on, that sense of it's... Um... I wonder, just before we um, finish with your poem, Saturday Night, since we were just talking about the River Severn, um, I wonder if you've ever visited the River Granta? No, <laughs> I haven't. <laughs> um, I had to mention it, cause, since it is the, the namesake of our yes. magazine. But um, have you ever considered writing a poem about <laughs> <laughs> What rhymes with Granta? <laughs> <laughs> if you wouldn't mind reading Saturday Night, that'd be wonderful. And before you do, I just want to say thank you so much for um, joining me today and for your answers to my questions. It's been wonderful talking to you. It's been a great pleasure, Ted. Thank you. This is a poem I wrote uh, after two things came together over a number of years, which is often how my poems occur. The first was I was driving in Suffolk very late at night through a market town and it was a Saturday night and I drove in into the town in complete darkness and in the middle all the lights were on and there were people lying all over the street and I thought for a moment some terrible curse had hit this place and then I realised it was binge drinking and I began to think about why why people drink like that and and what it means to be stuck in a small town. And eventually connected this with Elizabeth Bishop's great poem, The Moose, which is about a bus journey out of a small town towards the city and a confrontation with this moose. And the moose comes, she says, out of the impenetrable wood. And this phrase is the epigraph to this poem because I, for me, it this is all about... Um, things coming out of somewhere you can't get into, including yourself. Saturday night, out of the impenetrable wood, 
Elizabeth Bishop. And young girls shall gather to dance on the highway under petals of light that float from their shoulders and dip into lotion shadows. They shall coil their salty hair and target their lapsed muslins as they fall like cushions and spill. Do they dance for those creatures whose unmade selves come unbuttoning out of the dark? All strop and tang, they crave whatever will settle their erupted frames, their chemical blunders, their overgrown sentences. You who pass by can watch but not enter the world of this place. You know nothing of its way of growing tree from shadow so that all is fixed and root. You who pass by, pass by. <laughs>